Um, shall I pray? And then we'll um, get started. God, I want to thank you that you are here with us today. I pray that as we look at your word together now, you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear from you, and hearts that are open to you. And I pray that you would do that all for your glory. Amen. Cool. So um, as Lee mentioned, we'll be in Matthew. So if if there's a Bible kind of nearby, it'd be great if you could turn to Matthew in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12. And just while you find that, um, I'll just explain why that passage today. So as um, I'm sure you'll have noticed, we've still got a Christmas tree up behind us today. Um, Today, I believe, is the last of the 12 days of Christmas, um, which, depending on your views of Christmas, is either very exciting news or very sad news. what people, uh, most people don't realise is after Christmas in the church's calendar comes a thing called Epiphany. Now, I'd heard of the word Epiphany, um, and I was quite grateful of the chance to preach on Epiphany Sunday because it meant that I actually had to learn what it was. So I did a bit of researching, and I found out that the word Epiphany basically means um, revelation, um, or to give it um, some other words around that, something being revealed or disclosed. So in the church's calendar, around the time of Epiphany, we find out that there is something that is being revealed or disclosed. We find out something particular. And we see from the passage that I'll read just in a moment or two um, that that meaning um, that is revealed or disclosed is who the person of Jesus is. So we expl- we had Christmas where we celebrated that Jesus was born and came into the world. God made man, came into the world in order to save us from our sin. So Jesus was born at Christmas. At Epiphany, in the passage we see today, that starts to get kind of unraveled and unpacked in terms of, right, Jesus was born, he's here. Who is he and what does that mean? So that's the question that Epiphany tries to answer um, and unravel a bit um, as we look at Epiphany. So I'll read Matthew 2, 1 to 12, and then we'll get going. So the passage is titled, The Visit of the Wise Men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
So that is typically used um, as a Christmas story. Um, and obviously it's part of the kind of Christmas narrative that we're used to and that we know. Um, commentators think that that bit of the story kind of happened about two years after the baby in a manger bit that we all know so well. Um, and what I basically want to do is I want to introduce the three characters that we see in this story and then just think a bit about um, their responses to Jesus and who he is. So first of all, in verses one and two, I'm just going to introduce the key characters that we see in this story. So uh, the first character of this story, the third word in, in the Bible in front of me is Jesus. Um, now, potentially stating the obvious Jesus, when it comes to Christianity, Jesus is kind of one of the main players. So it's kind of no surprise that he's um, a bit of a um, main character in this story. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, I don't know whether um, you're from a church background, whether you would say you're a Christian or not. Um, as Christians, we believe that the Bible tells us all about who Jesus is and what he did. So as Christians, at this point of view in time, we know that Jesus came to this earth as a baby, but we know that then he grew up into a man and we knew that he lived an amazing life. He did amazing things and he died a death that we should have died so that we could have a relationship with God. We know that he did all that from the Bible, but at the point of writing, at the point of this story being written, obviously none of that had happened yet. So there were prophecies, uh, kind of predictions from the Old Testament that suggested that a Messiah or a saving one was coming to save God's people. But at the point of this story being written, that hadn't happened yet. So in one sense, Jesus was a bit of an unknown quantity in this story at this time. Obviously for us, it's different, but at that time, a bit of an unknown quantity in terms of who he was and what he came to do. So we've got Jesus. The second character that we see is Herod. Now, Herod was the king of um, Israel at that time. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in kind of politics today and in culture today, there's a criticism of a lot of political leaders. Uh, there's kind of like almost like a bit of like a strong man type thing going around in terms of political leaders at the moment. They kind of try and be like big and macho and like my country's bigger than your country and my dad's bigger than your dad kind of thing. And they try and like out muscle each other and show each other who's the biggest and who's the best. If Herod were around... Now, he would make all the leaders that are trying to do that again just look a bit soft and feeble. Herod was somebody who um, ruled exceptionally firmly and ruthlessly. He is somebody who um, killed his own wife, killed his kids, killed uh, not all of his kids, but some of them, killed um, multiple family members because they either said things that he didn't like or did things that he didn't like. So he was exceptionally firm, exceptionally ruthless, not someone to be messed with. As well as that, he was um, kind of, he had this almost like a property empire. He built um, temples, he built theatres and cities and palaces and fortresses, and he was exceptionally wealthy. So Herod is an extremely powerful king. He is somebody that isn't used to being messed with and who is used to calling the shots in his own life. He is very much in control of um, his view of the world. He's king. He's in charge. What he says goes. And that's just how it is. So that is Herod. And then our third kind of set of characters is the wise men or the magi, as some translations term it. Now, there's some disagreement over exactly who they are and what they do, but the kind of most agreed upon um, understanding of who the wise men are is that they're basically astrologers. They're people who study the sky, study the stars, um, and which kind of makes sense when you realize that it's them that notice there's something different about one of the stars in the sky. Um, you would imagine it would be astrologers that notice that kind of thing. So magi or wise men were astrologers. And it's 
important to just, I think, take a moment to notice um, what is important about this star. You see, the wise men would have been familiar with their Old Testament. They would have known their Old Testament scriptures, which were around um, at the time of Jesus. And they would have known that one of the Old Testament prophecies from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament talked about how a particular star would indicate that the Messiah had come. There's a passage in Numbers that talks about how there's a star that shows that God, um, when, they, when this star appears, it shows that God has sent his saving one into the world to save his people. So, you know, when we're talking about Epiphany, the Magi, the wise men, they're going about whatever it is that they do, they see this star and they have their Epiphany and they're like, he's here. We're not too sure where he is yet. We're not sure exactly what he's going to be like and we don't know certainly what he's going to do. But whoever this person is that God has said he's going to send has come. And notice what they call him in verse two. They say that he is the king of the Jews and they tell Herod or ask Herod, do you know where the king of the Jews is? Because we want to go and worship him. Now, on one level, that sounds like quite a um, straightforward question. But remember what we said about Herod earlier, how powerful he was, how used to call in the shots he was, how in control he was and how much he liked that for a group of people to come and say, do you know where the king of the Jews is? That is a massive attack on Herod. That is a massive affront on Herod. His response wouldn't be, well, actually, I don't know. Let's go and find him together. His response would be, well, no, I'm the king. What do you mean there's another king? I'm the king, not this baby. And so moving into verses three to eight, I think we see something of potentially what I would term the wrong reaction to Jesus as king. In um, the version I read earlier, it talks about how Herod um, was troubled when he was asked this question, do you know where the king of the Jews is? He was troubled because any other king is a threat to his control. Any other king is a threat to his power. It's hard to call the shots when there's two kings trying to battle it out for power and control. So Herod being asked, where is this king of the Jews? He doesn't like it. He hates it. And in fact, he says, oh, why don't you tell me where he is so I can go and worship him too? We see later on in the passage, that isn't his intention at all. His intention is to kill the other king because he can't handle the threat. He can't handle the idea of not running his own life, of calling his own shots. And in one sense, that is absolutely Herod's response. That is his own personal response. But in another sense, I think that is also an indicator of what humanity's response is across time to the claim that Jesus is king. Because whilst we not, well, I'm speaking for myself, whilst I don't have the power and the control and the empires that Herod has, I absolutely know that I like to be in control. I absolutely know that I want to be the one that calls the shots in my own life. I absolutely know that more often than not, I act and I live as if I think I should be king of my life. And, you know, you only have to uh, take a listen to uh, the news and some of the social commentators that are around at the moment to hear that that isn't, you know, that's not unique to me. Increasingly, people are saying, well, you know, I'll do what's best for me. You do what's best for you. And who, who am I to tell you what to do and vice versa? There is very much a kind of individualistic thing going on in our culture at the moment that says, I know what's best. 
And who are you to tell me otherwise? And Jesus directly counters that. Jesus comes as a baby, as king of the Jews. And as he grows up, he always claims to be king. And he says, I've come to save you. I've come as king of the Jews. Will you submit your life to me? That's the claim that Jesus makes when he comes. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't like just any other king. Because, as I said, Herod was all about power, was all about strength, was all about showing who's boss. Kings in those time, times weren't the kind of people who came to earth in a manger, in a stable, lowly and humble and poor. Kings didn't do that, but Jesus did that. Kings weren't the kind of people who um, spent time with tax collectors and sinners and adulterers and prostitutes and lepers, all the outcasts of society. Kings didn't do that, but Jesus did that and still does. Kings weren't the kind of people who when they rode into Jerusalem before they died for the sins of you and for the sins of me, kings weren't the kind of people who did that on the back of a donkey. Yet Jesus did that. Kings weren't the kind of people who knelt down and washed their disciples' feet. Yet Jesus did that. Kings weren't the kind of people who died to death that we should have died so that we could have a relationship with God. Yet Jesus did that. You see, Jesus comes as a king. But he comes as no king that has ever been seen before or will ever be again. And whether or not, you know, you accept the fact that Jesus is king, we can't try and just pretend he's not there. We can't eradicate him because the Romans tried that on the cross and he died. And three days later, he came back to life. So Jesus makes the claim. I'm king. What will your response I think we see from verses 3 to 8 that one response is to say like Herod I don't want it and do everything we can to fight it that is a response that's open to you but we also see a second response I think we see more what I've turned in my notes um, the right reaction to the king in verses 9 to 11 so the wise men, or the magi, they've gone on their journey to find Jesus. It took about 40 days for them to do that. Um, they gave three gifts, but there was more than three of them. Um, there was quite a, an entourage with them. It was quite, a, quite an effort to go from where they were to go and find Jesus. It took them about 40 days to do that. And when they got to Jesus, what did they do? They followed the star to the place where Jesus was because they'd seen in the Old Testament that that's what they needed to do. When it stopped where Jesus was, they were overjoyed. They were filled with joy at the fact that they could come into the presence of Jesus, that they could come to the King, that they could come to the one that God had sent to rescue his people from their sin. They were filled with joy at the fact that they could do that. And then we see as they walk into the house that upon seeing the baby, they bow down and they worship. They bow down and they worship because they recognize who this is. They recognize that this is the king of the Jews and they recognize the type of king that this is. 
And that's the same response for us now as well, because like any other king, any other king says, you do what I tell you to do and you'll probably be all right. But Jesus says, well, no, I went first. I did the doing first. I died for you first. So we bow down and we worship as response to that. We don't bow down and worship to try and earn our way in. We bow down and worship in response to the fact that Jesus went first, that Jesus loved first. And they gave gifts, they gave gold, they gave frankincense, and they gave myrrh. Now those gifts are important because they're expensive and they're costly. You see, if in response to all that Jesus had done, they gave gifts that didn't really cost them much, that were kind of just whatever they had in their pocket or whatever they had lying around, that wouldn't say all that much about what they understood and who they understood Jesus to be and what they'd understood him to come to do. But rather they gave the best of what they had because he had first come to them. And that, that call is the same of us today. We're not called to give our second best to Jesus. We're called to give our best and to give our all because he first did that for us. So I happen to think that in verses 9 to 11, we see something that is more akin to the right response to Jesus, the King, where we are filled with joy as we bow down and worship and give our all in response to all that Jesus has done for us. So where does that leave us? What do we do with that? Well, in the same way that the king of the Jews left Herod and um, the wise men with a choice back then, it leaves us with a choice now. What is your response to the claim that Jesus is king? What is your response to the claim that he wants to um, rule over your life? That he died to save you? and that we are called to give everything in response to that. As far as I can work out, there seem to be two responses to that. There's one that says, absolutely, I'm all in. And there seems to be one that says, well, no, that's not for me. Either's fine. But if you're somebody here today, who wouldn't have said that you're a Christian before. And there's something you've heard today, either you know through what I've been saying or through the worship or through something that has been said from the front or whatever it is. If you've heard something today that makes you think, actually, I want to um, accept what's being said and I want to submit my life to the rule of Jesus. That is amazing. I happen to think that's the best thing that you can do with your life to do that. Lee mentioned earlier, we've got some welcome cards in the pews. If you have a look, there's a box that says, I want to start following Jesus today or something like that. If you kind of fill your name in, fill your details in, just tick that box. And that just means that we can see that you've responded and you know we can start a conversation about what it might mean to follow Jesus. So if that's you, it'd be great if you could tick that box and hand it in to you know, someone with a lanyard on. It'd be great if you could do that. If you're someone for whom the answer is no, that this isn't for you, that's fine. I would encourage you to keep exploring, to keep finding out, because as I've said, I think following Jesus is the best thing that you can do with your life. I happen to think there's another way that we can respond as well, because for those of us who would say that we are Christians, that you know we've accepted Jesus as king over our lives, my experience of that is that we don't just say we accept that once and then we're done. We say an overarching yes. But then within every single day of our lives, we have 
multiple choices that we make and every single one of those choices contains within it an opportunity to say, yes, Jesus, I accept your reign or no, Jesus, I, I'm going to go my own way. Thank you. And again, my experience, just because you've said the overarching yes doesn't mean that, you know, you make every single right decision every single time. So let me encourage you to think about, if you're someone who say you're a Christian here today, how are you doing with the individual little yeses and noes that make up your day to day? Now that could be all sorts of different things. That could be to do with your relationships and how you conduct them. That could be to do with your money and how you spend it. That could be to do with um, how you speak around people when they're there or when they're not there. As we've heard, everything, we put everything into the reign of Jesus. So how are you doing with your little yeses and little noes that make up every single day? We've all got stuff we need to work on. We've all got stuff we need to deal with. Jesus came claiming to be king. I guess all I'm asking today is what is our response to that? Can I pray? Is that all right? God, I want to thank you that you sent your son to this earth. I want to thank you that you sent your son to this earth to die the death that we deserved so that we could have a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would constantly challenge us on where we're not living as if you were king. Would you fill us with your spirit today and every day? Amen.